And Angie's going to come up and read our scripture reading for this evening. Our scripture reading tonight through 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Father God, we thank you for this time. God, thank you for a chance to join together in this Christmas season um, to worship together. God, that is what um, this time and all times are about. God, that we are to be people of worship. You have fashioned us uh, and created us for worship. Um, God, that we would go about any part of our year um, without looking to your son, Jesus Christ. to show us um, who you are and who your son is in a new light, God, that we would understand um, you better, that we would understand ourselves better, that we would understand um, what you have called us to um, better, that you would use these things um, to make us into the people that you have called us to be. God, we thank you. We praise you. We ask that you would do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so if you're not already there, um, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Yep. Um, sorry, we're having technical difficulties. So um, it's year's end, right? Um, we are about to uh, about to be at um, uh, New Year's Eve, about to be in the year 2020. Um, kind of nuts. Um, I remember once upon a time, some of you don't remember this because you're just wee little babes, um, but I remember a time where that was like a science fiction kind of year, right? Like 2020 was like something that was way in the future, um, and, and uh, uh, we couldn't imagine that, and yet here we are. Um, and I think the case is, is that probably I was talking to some of the people who were a little more tech-savvy earlier, and they were talking about this idea of you, know, you get to the end and people are doing things on Instagram and Twitter and um, Facebook and stuff where they're doing these year-end review kind of things, right? They're looking back at their posts over the year and their and things and what's gotten the most traffic, uh, wrap-ups. I think somebody said they were called or some kind of recap or whatever. And so I was kind of doing the same thing, not with social media, but sort of thinking about ministry in the church and different things like that. Wanting to think back across the year in terms of some of the things that we have intentionally tried to be about uh, as a church um, from the time uh, we began. 
and and then thinking about those things and looking at this passage and thinking, recognizing that there are some of the things that we started our church with the intention of doing um, are are demonstrated very well in this passage, right? There that we see um, elements of those things in this passage um, very obviously. And as and I was thinking through those things and I started kind of. You know, you're writing a sermon and you're, you're sort of trying to get headings and, and break it down into an outline and, and stuff like that. And I started saying these little phrases like, you know, this, this gospel that Jesus has uh, come with, this child coming into the world that we see his picture, he's here for the truth, right? Um, and he is here um, for the world, um, and he's here for God's glory, and he's here for the church. And, and I started going, that sounds familiar, like these little phrases I'm saying. And then I realized it's... Southern Baptist Theological Seminary's motto or whatever. They used to have this marketing motto thing, and it was basically it said, SBTS, for the truth, for the church, for the world, for the glory of God. And, and I like that. I've got a T-shirt that it says it on it. Um, that's the mission, they would say, of the seminary, I suppose. Um, and you would hope it would be, right? Um, you would hope that a seminary would have those four things as their emphases. You would hope that any institution that that uh, was aligned with Jesus Christ would have those four things, the truth, the church, the world, and the glory of God as their focuses. Um, as we look at this passage, the good news that these angels are declaring is going out for and to those specific purposes, for the truth, for the world, for the church, and for the glory of God. Um, and so, I, again, I was, I was sort of reflecting on those things, thinking about, okay, so all these things kind of coming together. This passage and those ideas and what we have, what we have um, focused on as a church, how do all those things come together? And that's kind of what we're going to talk about tonight, how we're going to look at this passage, the lens that we're going to see this passage through. Um, so maybe a good place to start is this, is to say... Um, Obviously, last week we talked about the birth narrative, right? Um, and we talked about Jesus, uh, Mary and Joseph coming to Bethlehem and there was no room at the inn and all those things. This week it is that same night, right? It's the same uh, night of Jesus' birth when the shepherds come and, and uh, are, are made aware of the birth of Jesus. Next week we are actually going to talk about, um, since it's Epiphany um, in the church calendar, we're going to talk about next week the, the coming of the, of the Magi, of the wise men. The problem is, is that, number one, Luke doesn't talk about that, okay? And so we're sort of going to combine the ending of this, of, of the nativity narrative in Luke, and then we're going to kind of bring in some stuff from Matthew, too, to, to um, add to the story uh, a little bit. But there's also a problem in this, is that the... The wise men story probably happens months after the birth of Jesus, right? Maybe six months, maybe longer than that, after the birth of Jesus. And and then and then the next week after we do the the, the wise men, we're going to talk about when Jesus is taken to the temple to be dedicated, which probably happened way before that. It probably happened about forty days after he was born. Okay, and so. Um, so we have this kind of situation where we're going to get out of chronological order a little bit, and the events are going to kind of be a little um, uh, goofy. But I thought I'd give you real quick just something. And this is a possible timeline, right? There's a lot of debate as to the actual timeline of the coming of Christ and when that happened in human history. But I'm, I, I think this is a pretty good one. Um, and, and so it just kind of gives you maybe a little framework as we're talking about these things. So September of 3 B.C., September of 3 B.C., is when Jesus is conceived, right? This is the Annunciation and when Mary is told that, that she is going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. 
Um, and so that is probably around Jewish New Year of the year 3 BC, okay? Which would mean that Jesus would be born somewhere around the next June, okay? Which would, which would match up with how we understand shepherds working in, in the Near East, right? That they would be out in their fields at certain times of the year, not December, right? But they would be out in the field probably somewhere between March and November, okay? And so if they're there in June, that makes sense. That Jesus would be born sometime in June of 2 BC, okay? Um, Forty days later, he would be taken to the temple. So in July sometime, he would be taken to the temple to be dedicated. And then maybe um, in around December of that year is when the Magi visit. So they go over from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, just a short little um, five-mile kind of trip, go over and have him dedicated, and then go back to their sort of temporary place that they're staying there in Bethlehem in the short run, okay? Then around that same time the Magi come and visit in December is also the time when then... Uh, Herod goes about the, the process of, of executing and eliminating all the baby children who are under two years of age. And you start thinking, you go, well, that would make sense why he would say under two years of age, because it's probably been about that long since the, the star first happened and, and, and these things have started to move and the Magi started to notice these symbols in, in the heavens. And so around the early, either December or January, Herod kills all the children. Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt. Then, according to history, we think Herod died around the middle of the year 1 B.C., so maybe in June or July or something like that, and which would mean that, therefore, Jesus and his parents would come back to, to Israel in late um, 1 B.C., right, with Jesus being maybe a one- to two-year-old in, in, in that range or whatever, okay? And so that's kind of the timeline that we've got as we go throughout this stuff. And so, again, we're going to talk about the visit of the Magi out of order next week at Epiphany um, and then sort of come back around and talk about the dedication um, in the temple after that, okay? And so that kind of gives us a setup. But, but, again, talking mainly about this passage, what I want to do is kind of go through it with those four kind of headings in mind, okay? So for the world, for the truth, for the church, and for the glory of God. So starting again in verse 8, it says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. So maybe one place we should start is these characters of the shepherds and, and, and what we should know about shepherds in, in the Near East. Um, so number one, um, we probably think of shepherds being very kind of peaceful and pastoral, you know, kind of imagery, right? Just these, these dudes sitting out and, and watching their flocks and green fields and all these things like that. Um, but probably a better way for us to understand shepherds, especially shepherds the way that they would have been seen in, in, the, in the first century, is probably more like the way we think of cowboys in the American West. Okay? And so um, you think of, of, of cowboys, right? They're, they're rough, dirty, um, maybe a little dangerous. Um, uh, you know, you got a bunch of dudes sitting out um, in 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 the fields all by themselves. When they come into town, man, they're looking for trouble. They're they're looking for girls. They're looking for they're 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 not the kind of people that you would maybe want your daughter to hang out with. Okay, sometimes people will talk about the the uh, the shepherds like they were social outcasts, and I think that's probably a little strong. I think it's probably just, just they were they were part of the rougher 
social cast of, of, the, of the culture, right? They were just kind of a, um, a little rough characters, all right? Um, on top of that, however, they were also oftentimes ceremonially unclean. Right, so they are they are doing their daily work, um, working with animals, oftentimes dead animals, excrement, all the the nastiness that comes along with working with with animals. And because of those things, that made them that put them in a situation where they were ceremonially unclean, oftentimes. So th- that that presents an interesting picture for us right off the bat. Okay, so number one, think about the fact that a that a shepherd's working this close to Jerusalem their flocks were probably, at least in part, providing the temple with the sacrifices that would be used on, on a daily basis as, as worship was going on there, okay? And so these guys are the ones raising the sheep that will go into the sacrifices, and yet they are not allowed to go be a part of that, right? Um, they are doing work that makes the sacrifices possible, and yet they are not allowed to participate in those things because their work makes them ceremonially unclean. And yet, these uncouth kind of shepherds are the first people to hear the gospel, right? They are the first people to literally hear that word, the good news, it says. That's the same word that is translated gospel in other places in Scripture. Uh, Euangelizo, okay? It's the same It's the same idea, okay? They are the first ones to hear the good news. And, and the passage specifically tells us something. It says, this is... The angels bring good news of great joy, which will be for who? Well, it says for all people. Now, most scholars will say, well, it probably when it says all people, it's not meaning all people worldwide ethnically. When he uses, or they would have used the word all nations, okay? If he'd meant everywhere, people everywhere, he would have used the words all nations. That's still true. The gospel is for all nations, but it's not what he's focusing on in this passage. He's saying it's for all people, all the Jewish people, okay? Um, all the people who are here uh, uh, that, that, are, that are of the people of God, okay? And that's, and that's key for who the shepherds are and what's going on, right? Because he's saying this. The gospel is not just for the Pharisees, right? It is not just for the scribes. It is not just for the priests. The good news that is being announced is not just for the religiously elite. The, the good news is for everybody. It's for shepherds. It's for teenage girls. It's for barren old women that we've already seen, right? Um, and there's obviously a juxtaposition between this passage and the passage we saw last week. When we talked about King uh, or, or Caesar, uh, Caesar Augustus, when we talked about Cyrenius, right? The kings are not informed of the birth of Jesus, right? But the lowly people are. The common people are informed of it. Notice Luke doesn't even tell us the story of the wise men. Why is that, right? Well, because it doesn't fit into Luke's themes. Luke is is giving us a history, but he's giving us a very specific thematic kind of history, right? And so one of the things that he is zooming in on is the gospel and the way it meets those who are lowly, those who are are common. Um, Who is the gospel going out to? Well, it is going out to all people everywhere. Yes, magi and shepherd, royal and common, Jew and Gentile. Yes, ultimately that's the truth. But here, Luke is zooming in on the special attention to the sinner, the common, the downtrodden, um, the at-risk kind of people. The glory of God appears through this angelic message, not in the temple, like we saw with Zechariah, but in a field somewhere. Not to priests, but to shepherds who 
have the honor of being the first to hear it. Not to those who are ceremonially clean and ready to hear it, but in fact to those who are unclean, but whom God has chosen to reveal it to. All right? So the good news is going out to everybody, to the world, just like we said. But stop and ask yourselves a question. And this is kind of how I want to apply it to the stuff that we have in our own church. Um, you know, when we look at it, when we look at the American church, so much of American Christianity happens within the context of middle-class life. Does that make sense? So many of the trappings of Christianity take place in the context of middle-class life in America. And I mean the buildings and the stuff and the amenities and the accoutrement um, that come along with Christianity. And this is what I would ask the question of. If those things are necessary to do church, then who gets left out? Who gets left out of church when those are the standards by which we do church? Who are our shepherds, you could ask the context, in the context? Who are the people that are like the shepherds in this story? Who are the people who are out there working so that we can have the freedom to worship tonight together? Who are the people who are cut off from the life of God and the life of the church because of maybe necessary professions? That they, that they have. Because the gospel is for them too, right? In some ways, maybe the gospel is for them especially. Because God has particular care for those people. And I think that's something that we thought about a lot at the beginning of our church. And then it's something that didn't really work out the way we thought it was going to work out. And so therefore we have kind of moved on from it in many ways. But it's something that we need to revisit. Um, it's something that we need to focus on about who are those people in our community who um, cannot be here um, because of the circumstances of their lives. And what could we do to minister to those people so that they might be able to be? So that's that first thing. This gospel is going out. Christ is coming into the world for the world. Okay. Um, but he's also coming for the truth. Look at verse 11. So for unto us this day, this is the, this is what the, the angels are announcing. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So what is this joyous news that's, that's happening? What is, the, what is the announcement? That a child has been born in Bethlehem this day, right? Children are born every day, though, right? There's lots of children probably in, in Bethlehem. But this child is unique. Specifically, right? Why is his, why is he unique? Well, one reason he's unique is because he's going to be lying in a feeding trough, okay? That's one reason why he's unique. There are certainly symbols and, and sort of ways that we can interpret the meaning of that, that manger and stuff, and we talked about a little bit of that last, last week, but also recognize this. On one level, it is just a unique sign so that the shepherds will be able to find this baby that we're talking about. Right. And so you can imagine the scene where as they go door to door through Jerusalem or, or through Bethlehem, you know, they knock on the door and, and somebody answers and they say, you got a baby here? And they're like, yeah, we got a baby. It's over here in the crib. And they go, cool. If it's in the crib, wrong house. Keep moving. And so they go to the next house. You got a baby in a crib? Not the baby we're looking for. You got a baby? Yes, yeah, they're in the manger. Then this is the place. Right. Because babies shouldn't be in mangers. And so it's a sign for the the uh, the shepherds to know which child it is that they're, they're supposed to find. Okay. And so obviously that 
Jesus is unique because he's going to be lying in a manger. But that's not the main reason, obviously, that he's unique. Okay, He's unique for at least three other reasons that we notice in this. And it has to do with his titles and his names that he has given. What is most significant about this child is that he is a Savior Christ Lord. Okay? That he is a Savior, a Christ, and a Lord. And not just a Savior, a Christ, and a Lord, but the Savior, the Christ, and the Lord. Three theologically loaded titles are given for Jesus in this passage, right? So, so first off, <coughs> Savior. <coughs> So first off, Savior. Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is called Savior often. Right? Um, It's commonly attested to his character, that he's the Savior of his people. Even Caesar, um, in bringing peace to the empire, was sometimes called a Savior. Okay? But when we talked about Mary's Magnificat, a, long, a couple weeks ago, we noticed these prophetic predictions that came in in that passage, right? That would talk about the nature of the salvation that was being brought to the people, right? And that was a salvation where we noticed certain things in her, her prophetic announcement that we would be saved by what, from what, for what, right? And so we talked about the idea that Jesus is, we are going to be saved by Jesus' sacrifice from sin for the purpose of living in holiness and service to God, okay? And so Jesus comes in as a savior to his people, but not the way Caesar is a savior, even though that was a false kind of savior, right? But, but, a, but a specific kind of savior, savior, not just a political savior, not just a military savior, but a savior who would sacrifice his own life to forgive and atone for people's sins so that they could now live in holiness before their God. So he is a savior. Two, he is Christ, Okay, Christ is the Greek word that is from the Jewish word that is Messiah. And Messiah and Christ are translated into English basically saying the anointed one. Okay, the chosen one, you could say. Jesus is the one. That's what the shepherds are being told. The the baby that has been born, Jesus is the one. The one what? Right, well... As I tell you guys a lot, I'm a nerd, right? I love nerd stories. I love all the nerd stories, okay? And this idea of the one, right, the chosen one, is a big concept throughout nerddom, right? And so whether you're talking about Star Wars or Harry Potter or The Matrix or Lord of the Rings, right, this idea of a chosen one comes into all those stories very heavily, right? And here's this interesting thing that I think, and it's part of the reason why I love those stories and stuff, is... We have this archetype, you could say. We have an idea that that idea of a chosen one resonates with people. All right? Um, it's in our hearts somehow. It's in our conscience, consciousnesses. Consciousness? Consciousness. Consciousness. It's in our consciousness, right? Um, I, was, I was talking, you know, it's, man, it's, it's Star Wars time, and there's been all these Star Wars talks, and people are nerding out about Star Wars, and I was like, man, that's part of the reason why I didn't like The Last Jedi is because they basically said, hey, Ray, you're a nobody. That's what your story is. You're nobody special. You're just a random person. And, and I was like, that didn't make any sense. She's supposed to be a chosen one. She's supposed to be a somebody. She's supposed to be something to her, right? That's part of the reason why I didn't like that story. 
Um, I, I think the reason those stories resonate with us is because God's put that in our hearts, right? It's almost like he designed our hearts and our heads and the way we think to prepare us for the coming of the actual one, right? The one who is the, the, the preeminent one. Jesus is the one, okay? And so you notice that in this passage is that Jesus is this Christ. He is the anointed one. He's the chosen one. He is the one that we've been waiting for for all this time. And he is so much the chosen one that it's functionally his name in the passage. Did you notice that? So it says when the, when the, the, uh, shepherds are supposed to go find him, they are supposed to go find Christ the Lord, right? It doesn't say go find Jesus. Okay. It's funny because you hear theologians a lot of times, you'll have these little commentaries and they'll talk and they'll make the joke that, Hey, Jesus, uh, that Christ is not Jesus last name, right? So people say, well, Jesus Christ, and they'll say, you got to realize Christ isn't Jesus last name, except the thing is in this passage, it functionally is right. It is literally his name in this passage because his identity is so associated with that role of being the promised one, right? The one who was to come. And so Jesus' identity is inseparable from that status as the anointed one. And he's not just a one, right? Because we've had a few a ones. Um, John the Baptist is a foretold person, right? He is a kind of chosen one. But Jesus is not just a chosen one. He is the chosen one. And not just the chosen one of this story, but the chosen one of all stories and all history and all creation, in fact. And so he is Savior. He is Christ. And then finally, he is also Lord. And it is the title that we've already talked about a few weeks ago because it is the same title that Elizabeth used when Mary walked into her house and she said, why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord um, would, would come to my house, right? Um, as we mentioned a, a couple weeks ago, um, it's, it, that, that word Lord, although it is certainly used sometimes of earthly Rulers, it is also the word that is used to translate the very name of God in Scripture, Yahweh or Jehovah. And so Jesus is being associated with that too, right? He is being given that title that is associated with the very personhood of God, that Jesus is Savior, He is Christ, and He is Lord. Not just a ruler, but the ruler of all rulers, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Those are heavy truths, right? Like, I mean, I just breezed over them real quick. But, I mean, you could read books about the concept of Jesus as Savior, of Jesus as Christ, as Jesus as Lord. And we could dig into those things um, in, in, in a lot of heavy ways. But notice this. Those things aren't revealed to scribes, experts in the law, right? They're not revealed to Pharisees. They're not real, revealed to the priests in this story, right? They are revealed to common shepherds. People who certainly had no special education in any of these things. And in fact, probably because of their unclean status, probably even had less knowledge of these things than maybe the average person might have had. And yet, one, they are considered worthy of it. Two, the depth of it is not wasted on them. And three, they are capable and responsible for that knowledge. And so what I want to say is, is, is this, as we're kind of talking about um, the gospel being for the truth, okay? One of those ideas that came, that w- when we started this church, we wanted to focus on was, was the idea that every single one of us, every single member is not only a disciple, but should be working towards being a discipler. 
that you are someone who should not only be digging into the truths of God's word, but you should be somebody who's sharing those truths with other people. And I know sometimes that as we go throughout church life or whatever, right, and we do studies or we do discipleship classes or any of that stuff, you may have a voice in the back of your head that says something like, you know, this stuff is over my head, right? Or I don't need to worry about the stuff at this level and it's, 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 it's not something that I need to worry about. And, and the truth is, is this, it isn't over your head and you do need to worry about it, right? You are responsible for these things. Um, that God is calling you to these things, to know these things and to dig into them and to dwell in them and know them well enough that you can turn around and share them with other people who don't know them um, and disciple those people and walk along beside them in faith. If God reveals the mysteries of the universe to shepherds, then how much more are we responsible to do the hard work of study and growth in all these areas? And so what I would encourage you is this. Keep pushing in, man. If you don't, if you, if you read a thing or you, you go to a book study and you don't get it and you're like, man, this is kind of over my head, that's okay. It's over everybody's head when you start, okay? Keep learning. Keep listening. Keep reading. Keep growing. Keep discussing. Keep leaning into all this stuff. Don't give up on it and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what we are called to. Okay, and so, so this gospel is for the world, it is for the church, I mean, for the, uh, it is for the, the truth, but it is also for the church. And we notice something particular about what happens in verse 13 and 14. Because it says, and suddenly there was with the angel, the one angel who was telling this message, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay. Um, one angel is joined by this multitude proclaiming the message. And I want, I want us to zoom in first on the second half of what he says, because it's kind of a historically difficult passage to translate. Most of us, or maybe not, but, but many of us know that passage because of the, like the Charlie Brown story, the KJV version of that, that passage, right? We have heard that passage quoted in the Bible, uh, the, the Bible nativity narrative throughout our lives. And a lot of times it will say, I'm trying to remember exactly how it goes, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, right? Something like that. Um, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And we're sort of like, I'm not sure peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Is that God saying peace on earth and showing goodwill towards men? What exactly is going on there? Most modern translations come back and say, man, that's not the best way to understand that passage. It's not the best translation. The ESV says this, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I like the, the, the rendering of the NIV, though, maybe in terms of clarity best. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Okay, so here's the question. Does Jesus come to bring peace to all people? At, the, at this event where the gospel is being declared and the mission of God in the gospel is, is being declared, is part of that Jesus coming to bring peace to all people? And the answer is, in a sense, yes. The offer is made to all people, right? God graciously extends that offer, you know, as the song goes, as far as the curse is found, right? The, the seed of the gospel is scattered broadly to all people. However, the problem is, is narrow is the way. And ultimately, only those who receive the gospel are the people on whom God's favor rests. They are the only people who are going to experience that peace. So Jesus 
honestly, doesn't come to bring peace to everyone. In fact, when we read the Gospels, that's made very clear. There are certain people who Jesus comes to bring division to, who he, he comes to bring a sword to, functionally. We're actually going to talk more about that when we get to Simeon's prophecy when we are at the temple in a couple of weeks, at the dedication. Right? Simeon does not just say, oh, man, this is great. Everything's going to be good now that Jesus is here. That is not his prophecy um, about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Jesus doesn't come to bring peace to everybody. Jesus comes to bring peace to those on whom his favor rests. Jesus comes to bring peace for his people, his gathered people, which is the church universal. And so the truth is, is this, man, we got to realize this. We have a faith that exists in tension. Um, we invite the world to come. We go out into the world and tell everybody but we also realize that God's people are uniquely connected to him in ways that the world cannot be. Not until those people turn from their sin and receive Jesus Christ. And there's not any context in which we, do, we, we say that arrogantly or proudly, right? It's not because we're better than anybody else. We're not looking at other people going, oh, well, we're God's people and you're not. That's not the deal. We are all just beggars trying to tell other beggars where to find bread, the saying goes. But we have Jesus. And because we have Jesus and he is better, then we have a unique relationship with God. And so here's the deal. To pronounce peace to those who are separated from Christ is not only a lie, but it is a cruelty to them. To pronounce the peace of God on people who are far away from God is not the gospel, and it is not what he has called us to. Peace is a gift of God for the people of God who are in Christ. And so, finally, so, so that, uh, that's just a hard stop. I'll just stop there on that, right? So, so this gospel is for the church, right? It's, it's, it's not wrong to say it that way. It is for the world, but it is also for the church in a unique way. And then finally we come to this idea, it is for the glory of God. Okay? So notice something, that, that this Savior, Messiah, Lord that we see here, that is announced in the good news, that Jesus' birth that is announced, but then what happens is when that is announced to the shepherds, there is a response that happens. Do you notice that? That there's two different things going on. There is one angel saying, I bring you good news that Jesus is born, and then all of a sudden behind him, or whatever, this chorus bursts out with a sort of a separate message. That separate message is glory to God in the highest and peace on earth uh, to those on whom his favor rests. Right? That's the, 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 the sort of chorus um, that comes out. Okay? So notice something. The glory of God is revealed in the coming of Christ. And it is, it is these kind of things throughout Scripture that I would argue point us even deeper and more fully towards the, the truth of the Trinity. All right? Um, Jesus coming into the world is what is bringing glory to God in this case. So, so again, as this one angel says, hey, i got good news for you. Jesus is coming into the world. Then all the other angels say, well, glory to God then. Okay? Glory to God that Jesus is coming into the world. Okay? So here's, here's what I want you to think about. And this is one of those subtle things, right? It doesn't just lay it out and say, God is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's not, it's not that straightforward. But in this passage, the angels of heaven burst into worship, exalting the God of the universe in, in the utmost because 
Jesus is being born and lying in a manger in Bethlehem. Okay, And I want you to realize this. If Jesus' birth elicits worship on the part of the angels, it would be blasphemous for that to occur for a normal kid. Right? If Jesus is just a baby, then it would be blasphemous for the angels to worship the God of heaven and exalt him at this moment. Unless Jesus himself is worthy of that worship. Unless Jesus himself is worthy of all the worship that could be given because he is himself God. And so as Jesus is coming into the world and the angels erupt in glory to God in the highest, that makes perfect sense. Why? Because Jesus is God. And he is taking on flesh in this moment. He is not separate from God. He is not a baby that will one day get some, some, some God energy or God spirit, right? He is fully God and fully man in that moment. The gospel is the point at which God is most glorified, right? In the coming of his son, in the, in the perfect life of his son, in the perfect death of his son, and in his resurrection. Um, that is the point at which God is most glorified in the world. And because it is the clearest and most beautiful exhibition of God's character and love and sacrifice, it is this moment in which the angels in heaven burst into praise and say, glory to God in the highest. Okay? And so what we notice is this. The gospel is about God's glory, right? Um, the gospel is for the church, for the world, for the truth, but it is also for the glory of God because God is seen most clearly in the world, among the world, because of what he's doing in Jesus Christ. And that glory, that it would be truly seen, clearly seen, that the glory of God in the good news of the Savior Jesus Christ, that is the ultimate goal of our church. Right? It is the ultimate goal of any seminary. Um, it is the ultimate goal of any believer and your life as you go out into the world. That's what we're called to. Okay? And so I, I kind of want to close on that. And I want you to think about these things as we go into the new year. Okay? How is the gospel playing out in your life? And how is it playing out according to those things? This gospel that is for the truth, for the world, for the church, and for the glory of God. Um, is the gospel sort of this thing that sits in the back of your life? Is it something that sits in the back of your, of your faith, of the way you live your life out in, on a daily basis? Or is it something that is up front and shining through the prism of those four things that we talked about? I pray that that is what our church will do. That's who our church will be as we go into 2020 and, and far beyond that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask him to do those things in our lives, and then... Um, Cody will come back up and close us in, in, in worship. O Lord, length of days does not profit, except the days are passed in your presence, in your service, to your glory. God, give me a grace that proceeds and follows and guides and sustains and sanctifies 
and aids me in every hour, that I may be one, not one moment apart from you, but may rely on your spirit to supply every thought and to speak in every word and to direct every step, to prosper every work, to build up every small mode of faith, and to give me a desire to show forth your praise, to testify of your love, and to advance your kingdom. God, as we launch out into 2020, we don't know what you have in store for us. But we know that we have you, Father, as our harbor, you, Christ, at our helm, and you, Holy Spirit, filling our sails. God, we ask that you would guide us in your way. Lamp burning, ear open to your calls, heart full of love, a soul freed by your grace. God, give us mercy to sanctify us, comforts to cheer us, wisdom to teach us, a hand to guide us, counsel to instruct, law to judge, and your daily presence to stabilize. God, may your fear be, the fear of you be the awe that draws us into worship. God, in that the triumph of your kingdom would be our joy. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.